are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Last week, we were introduced to a new character in our story named Elihu, and we discovered a lot of things about Elihu, trying to figure out even now, can he be trusted? Is he somebody like his three other friends that gave Job a hard time? Does he align with the theology of Job? What would God have to say about Elihu? Does what Elihu has to say, does it line up with a proper theology of God, of sin, of suffering, of redemption? Uh, where does Elihu stand? And we discussed a couple things last week. Number one, we learned that Elihu was young and angry, which would probably be reasons not to listen to him. Uh, he waited for the other three older friends to speak, and now we get Elihu his turn. He said, ah, it's finally my time. I was waiting for the old guys to get done. Finally, I'm the young whippersnapper. It's my turn. And we learned very quickly that this kid is also very angry. Uh, he was angry at Job. He was angry at the three friends multiple times. Uh, anger was a big theme of the opening introduction of Elihu. Yet, we also see some fairly significant things as to reasons why we could bend into what Elihu has to say. Number one, the timing of Elihu's voice or uh, Elihu's prophetic voice in this passage uh, is pretty unique. It comes after Job. It comes right before God, and God really seems to pick up right off the heels thematically of what Elihu has to say. In other words, God doesn't come in and start to reshuffle what Elihu said or go off the path or say, hey, let me revert course here. Let me get back on track. God seems to pick up right where Elihu left off, which seems significant. There's also some weird textual significance related to Elihu's name. It's a Hebrew name, which seems significant. Elihu is noted to have a genealogy, which means he may be important um, just from the, from the timing of it. Also, he's very passionate. He's very humble. And he seems to have a kind of unction that is spirit-filled. Uh, Elihu also seems to speak of a kind of regeneration that has happened in his heart. And he also seems to have at least being able to claim that he's a prophet from God in some capacity or another. These would all be reasons, though he is young and angry, why we might be able to bend in to a little bit of what Elihu has to say. Whereas Job's three friends were trying to argue with Job that he sinned and therefore received suffering, it is helpful to note that Elihu's theme is that Job is suffering, and in the middle of his innocent suffering, Job is in the process of sinning. Job is in the process of kind of getting off track as he is innocently suffering. All right, do you guys see that difference? So his friend said, said that he sinned somewhere back here and has earned suffering. 
Elihu doesn't say that. Elihu says, yes, you are innocently suffering, but Job, check your heart right here and right now. What is going on in the present? It doesn't look good. You have some things to learn. And from, from that perspective, Elihu very confidently last week told Job in very specific terms, God is speaking, Job. He's already speaking to you if you're listening. Well, how is God at work speaking to Job specifically through his suffering? Number one, he speaks through troubled consciences. He speaks in the guilt of our own heart. But he speaks through common mercies as well. He uses all sorts of things to actually highlight the goodness and the kindness of God in very common ways. But most specifically, God is speaking through various sufferings. And at the very end of his speech last week, He made it very clear that God intends to speak very clearly, not in your sufferings, but in the sufferings of another. Specifically, of course, we know this to be Christ. God is at work speaking through your sufferings, which help you to understand a deeper reality of the sufferings of Christ, the ultimate innocent sufferer. And he didn't just do it in a vacuum. He did it for you. He did it for your sin. He did it for your eternity. He did it for your redemption. Though we didn't know names, he didn't know really anything, Elihu does speak about the mercy of God, and you might begin to even think now, maybe Elihu is someone worthy to be trusted after all. Well, we're going to get a little bit more into Elihu's speech. Um, We're only going to cover chapter 34 today. Uh, He's going to cover basically two things. He's going to make a very public speech, and then he's going to make a very private speech. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. I have a, uh, most of you actually probably in this room know my dad, um, but I have a dad who is kind of like Elihu. Not that he's young and angry, he's neither of those two things, but he is a very clear truth teller. And some of you have actually been on the receiving end of my father's truth telling. I get some amens from here. You guys know what I'm talking about. He shoots straight, all right? My dad is a very straight shooter. We've actually joked with my dad that if he ever gets out of ministry, he could actually own a business where I would pay, like, if I have something really hard to tell somebody, right? Like, I have to go tell my boss, like, you're the worst person ever. I would pay my dad to go do that because he has no problem just, like, telling people the truth. He'd be like, listen, pal, I was paid to tell you this, but I need you to know you're the worst boss that some of these people have ever had. He just has this way, like, no no problem saying what needs to be. Some of you are laughing because you know it's true. But this this is kind of the house I grew up in. I'm not like that. I feel like I probably have a little bit more of like a merciful side to me that would be like, it makes it very difficult for me to say hard things to people. Uh, And maybe you're like, are you kidding me? You're like one of the most brash persons I know. Maybe, I don't know. But just know my dad is even more than that. Well, growing up in this context, uh, number one, I always wondered like really why no one has ever punched my dad. Like no one's ever like punched. I'm like, seriously, like one of these days that you're going to get punched in the face just how it's going to happen. But he would always ask this question that I almost at times got so upset with him, especially as a teenager, that I was like, dude, you're about to get punched in the face. He would always ask. I, w- I would go home, and, and Quentin knows this. Where's Quentin? He's, he's with kids. Quentin knows this because Quentin had a lot of talks with my dad, all right? A lot of talks with my dad. I had them every once in a while, okay? Because I, I watched Quentin get into a lot of trouble. I learned all right, that's, don't do that. And so I hid. But there were these times I would go into my dad's bedroom, and I just want to just unload, right? As a teenager, just like, here are all my problems. 
Dad, what would you have to say? And really, actually, I wasn't really asking him to say anything. I just wanted a listening ear. And he would always ask at the very end this annoying question that bothered me and bothered me. And now I use it on my kids. It's great. But he would always ask this question. He said, what do you think God is doing in this? Yep. You guys know. You know how to say that. What is God doing in this? And I'm telling you guys, like that was the most infuriating question to me. Not because it's the wrong question. It's a great question, right? And I'm learning now. That's a great question. But I think I really struggled with that question because I was content to live my life about me and what I'm doing. I had a very, as a teenager, like like most of us do, we had a very selfish approach to life. Me, what I want, what I have to do, what I need to do, how people can fix life for me. It's a very selfish perspective, and it makes sense. But his question framed my entire theology in ways that I wasn't thinking. He, He took me out of the sphere of self and put me not in what do you think you're thinking about this? Or what do I think about this? But let's ask God what he is thinking about this. And whether or not we get an answer of clarity at all is almost irrelevant because it just changed the dynamic of my way of thinking. It changed the posture of my way of thinking. And I was frustrated because life at that moment with that question inserted means life is not about me. Life is not about what I think. I am not the God of my own life. And so this kind of truth-telling becomes really significant, especially when we're used to hearing life being all about us. We often want our lives to be about us, and it shows up in how we respond in our words and our actions. In other words, what we do and what we say ends up reflecting what we believe to be true about that question. What is God doing? Either nothing because he's not God, or a whole lot more because we've given up trying to be God in our own lives. Now, certainly there is a struggle with this. How do we speak truth? How do we bring conversations into the realm of truth, like what is God doing, with a heartbeat of love? Because to be truthful, yes, that was the truth of what needed to be said. What is God doing in this? That's a question that needs to be answered. Yet, in my heart, it was the most frustrating question. I always wondered, like, Dad, why can't you just listen to me? Why can't I just get a problem out of my mouth without you bringing God into the picture? Can I ever just vent and no doubt... Job was in that motion. God, can't I just vent? Can't I just be angry? Why do I have to try to think about you in these moments? I'm going through enough, thank you. Can I just think about me? And what Elihu is helping Job to realize, because Elihu is this kind of truth teller. He's this kind of prophetic voice. He is the quintessential Eric Sype in my voice asking, what is God doing to Job? And what Elihu is helping us to realize, and us to realize in this very moment, no matter what you are going through, is that we must submit our hearts to the truth. Not to what I want to be the truth. Not to what I feel. Not to what I want to work through. Not even to my selfish desires. 
but ultimately to the truth. And Elihu helps us. If you're listening, Elihu, and again, you're going to have to filter it because you're going to ask questions like, well, Elihu, that's not very kind. And Elihu, is that the most loving thing you can say? And if you let that be the filter, you're not going to hear the truth of what needs to be heard. And yes, Elihu is young and he's angry and kind of an idiot, but he's saying something true. Would you like to hear that? If you're listening, you'll hear Elihu speak. If you find reasons to be offended by how Elihu comes across, you'll miss it entirely. Okay? And I'm not going to sit here and defend Elihu. In fact, I have a lot of questions about like, man, I'm, is that... Because no one get, comes to the end and says, and that's how you pastor, my friend. You line up like Elihu and you just shoot truth darts at people. No, I mean, God's not affirming what Elihu did. But the reality is, it seems like what Elihu is saying, Joe has no retort for. And God continues right off that and says, boy, howdy, Elihu, let's keep going. If you're listening and willing not to be hurt, the question of what is God doing might just be the kind of truth you need and I need and your suffering and mine. So no matter what our hearts are going through, we must submit our hearts to whatever the truth is, regardless of how Elihu says it. Are you ready for it? It's pretty powerful. All right, public speech number one, public speech. Actually, it's only it's number one, public speech, because there's a private speech. Now we're going to talk about the public speech. This is verses 1 through 15. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. And these are plural verbs. That's why it's a public speech. He's talking to a lot of different people here. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water? who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Therefore, hear me, young men, or you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and a man would return to dust. This is the public speech that he gives. Again, as I mentioned, these are plural verbs that he's using in this category. It's not clear exactly who he's speaking to. I'm going to assume that it's Job and his three friends, those four guys. I think he's speaking it loud enough for these guys to hear. Again, in chapter 32, he was angry at these dudes. Uh, so it makes sense that in his anger, he kind of re 
retorts back to them. But in this speech, he's actually trying to give a defense of God using Job's logic. He's going to use Job's logic against Job and actually make here a defense of God. And so he says, you guys need to listen up and then let us decide what we think is true here. Let's take a look at what Job has to say. Verse 5, here's what Job has said. And there's two different things that he's going to pick up that Job has said. Number one is found in verse 5. For Job has said, I am in the right and God has taken away my right. This is exactly what Elihu was very angry with Job about. Job is saying, I'm righteous. God has taken away my standing of righteousness. Elihu is angry with Job. Remember this from chapter 32, verse 2. Then Elihu burned with anger at Job because he, quote, justified himself rather than God. It's this question here. Job did not start with who is right. He didn't start with that question of who is right. He did start with the question of who is right, but he said, I'm the right one. Who is right? Me. It's me. I am right. And God took the rightness that I had away from me. And that's what Elihu's trying to say. Man, it's not about you. Stop trying to defend yourself. In this conversation, man, in your suffering, it has never, ever at one time been about you. And from this perspective, Elihu is right on. What is this whole book about? It's about God justifying himself. Not that he needed to, but he was displaying how satisfying he is. Remember, this whole thing is a contention with God and Satan. Satan comes to God and says, I think if you take everything away from people, they'll have no reason to love you and to trust you. And God's like, hold on. I think I can take everything away from people, and I, by myself, can satisfy the human heart. Let's put this to the test. Have you considered my servant Job? It has never been about Job. At one point, it has never it's been a totally nameless and faceless God setting his, himself up as all-satisfying. had nothing at any point to do with Job. And Job's sitting here standing. I, it's all about me. It's all about me. I had the right standing, and God took it away from me. We have to understand, Job was asking the wrong question. He was constantly asking, who's right never been about who's right. And so now Elihu is actually going to say that Job <laughs> says a couple things here. And this is, this is where I might pick on Elihu a little bit. I, it's, I, I, it's really hard to know at this point if what Elihu is accusing Job of at this point is, is the truth. It is really hard to tell, to be honest. It's probably just going to be a question I ask God when, when we get to heaven. I don't, I don't really know. Here are a couple things that that Elihu picks on Job for. Verse six, uh, in, spite of my route, uh, in spite of my right, I am counted as a liar. Okay, so Elihu picks up on this, that Job said, God's making me out to be a liar. Now, go back to chapter 16, verse eight. Job did say, God has witnessed against me, right? It was like this court session, and it's like God was the, the, the witness against me, accusing me of all these things, calling me a liar. I'm trying to say, I'm right. God was the witness against me saying, no, nope, I saw him. It was Job in the lounge with the rope, saw him. He did it. God witnessed against me. And in that sense, 
Sure. Maybe Job did call God a liar. Not sure. It's just tough. I think Elihu's going a little strong. Maybe true. But then he goes on and says, Job also claimed in verse 6, my wound is incurable. Well, has Job ever said his wound is incurable? Maybe. I don't really know, to be honest. It's hard to tell. You can go back to chapter 3 if you remember this uh, statement from Job. Uh, He talks in very, very graphic detail about cursing the day he was born, willing uh, that he was never even alive or uh, hoping that he was never even born, never wanting to see the day of his birth again. Maybe he thought that it was completely hopeless. There's no way out. But that was chapter 3, and you go through the rest of the book of Job, and every once in a while, Job is dropping hints of redemptive mercy, miraculous redemptive mercy. And so it's kind of hard to tell. I don't know. It seems it's up in the air. Again, I don't know if Elihu's telling the truth there or not. Go to verse 9. This is something else Elihu's saying that Job is, is saying. Verse 9, for he has said, Job has said, it profits man nothing that he should delight in God. If you go back to chapter 9, Job does say that God destroys the blameless and the wicked together, right? But isn't that true? I mean, isn't that true? Bad things happen to good people and bad people. Disasters happen, and in many ways it's like a hurricane is not really picking out good people and bad people and saying, all right, let's go for those people. no. There's a real sense to which God, in one sovereign sense, destroys good people and bad people. Look at Job. Again, the innocent sufferer. Looks like God was at work destroying him. Isn't that kind of true in some earthly way? Seems a little strange. But here we are. Verse 9, he makes it very clear. Job is making the accusation against God. It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Maybe. It's kind of hard to tell, to be very honest with you. I think the main point, what's really significant from this passage is verse 7. What man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water? And verse 8, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. This isn't to say, Elihu's not trying to say here that Job is evil and is accompanied with evil men. What he's saying is that he is speaking like an evil man. He's speaking as if he has gotten into some trouble. He is speaking as if right now he does not have a proper view of God. He's speaking in a way that isn't correct. In other words, if I can say it this way, he's asking the question, who's right? He's not asking the question, what is right? He's trying to justify himself as an evil person would, and he's not asking the question, who is God? What has he done? What is the truth here? He's not asking that question. And in that sense, regardless of Elihu's accusations of Job, which seem really strong to me, but again, he's young and angry, it seems like Job is off here. And I would agree. It seems like somewhere Job is kind of losing grip. He's trying to justify himself, and he's not thinking from a truly theological or Godward perspective. But humanly speaking, it's also hard to blame him. Have you ever been there? I feel like I'm there every day. Again, that's why that question that my dad raised was so hurtful, but also, like, so infuriating. I'd like life to be about me, thank you. It's tough. 
So now Elihu's going to say, this is what Job should have done. He should be asking the question, what's right? What's the truth here? And so he says in verse 10, therefore, hear me out, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. God's not in the business of doing wicked things. Put that in your theological truth bank. Put that in your catechism. God does not do wickedness. So Job, whatever you're thinking, your theology is off. Your functional theology is off. God does not sin. And far be it from the Almighty that he should do wrong. In fact, God, according to the work of man, he repays him. He does perfect justice. And according to his ways, he will make it all befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And ultimately, he's going to argue for the justice of God, but then he's also going to get to this big, overpowering statement that, again, if you're listening, it's probably really frustrating, but it will anchor your soul. He gets to this broad perspective of God is just, but also, adjust this in your thinking of justice, God is God. God is God. So who are you to even ask questions of justice to the God who is the God? How are you even going to ask him? Who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. You are just a dude. Who cares what you think? And again, that's hard, isn't it? That is hard. And you're like, as as a person who wants life to be all about me so that I can manage my suffering, so that I can have a leg to stand on, so I can wiggle free of the things that infuriate me, coming to grips with God's justice, but also just God's godness is really hard, yet it's the truth that's missing in my heart. Because when I'm God, life is pretty frustrating. Trying to figure out that equation is pretty frustrating. But if I let God be God, well, that answers that one big question for me. Who's, who's ruling my life? I might not like it. I might not understand it all. But it frees me from the burden of having to be God. And this is ultimately the defense that Elihu gives. Job. It's never been about who is right. God's not asking you the question, are you doing what's right? Your suffering has never been this question of, man, you did wrong. You've got to fix yourself. It's never been about that. It's about this ultimate truth. Who's God in your life? Who's the one who set everything in place? Do you have the right to speak up to God? Or does he speak to you? God is God. It's a powerful speech. Again, not filled with warm and fuzzies. But if you're listening, it might just check your heart in a way that brings a little bit of the freedom you're longing for. But then he's going to move to a private speech. And this one's very directed at Job himself. It's a private speech, very directed at Job himself. It's this rebuke. And this is verses 16 through the end. And it's interesting because this shifts from very plural verbs to very uh, singular verbs here. There's only one person he's speaking to here. Verse 16, if you have understanding, Job, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? 
speaking of God, will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? In a moment they die, at midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by human hand, by no human hand. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves, for God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see, because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. So they caused the cry of the poor to come to him. And he cried the, he heard the cry of the afflicted. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? Whether it be a nation or a man. That a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. The ultimate charge against Job comes... In verse 17, he's asking Job, will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Are you going to stand above God and offer this judgment to God when he is the one who is righteous, when he is the one who is mighty? Is that your place, Job? He's basically then going to argue regarding the justice of God why Job has no place to condemn God. Job, you have no right to put this on God. Look at the very justice that God displays. And he's going to list out five things about God's justice that are very clear, that give Job no ability to stand, no leg to stand on to justify himself. Number one, God's justice is impartial. In verse 19, he shows no partiality to princes nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. As other passages of scripture say, God is not a respecter of persons. It's almost impossible for us to think about, isn't it? Even coming to church, we can't help but put people in categories and boxes of sufferers and those who have their life together and rich people and poor people and competent people and incompetent people, good drivers or bad drivers. That's how I think. We're constantly squaring people up. God has this ability to just flatten all of humanity on one level playing field, and he's not regarding money or righteousness or status or approval. Just one person after one person after one person with equality. It's beautiful. He's totally impartial. And Job finds himself in that category. He is neither super righteous, and therefore God looks at him, or he's not super unrighteous, where God doesn't think about him. Just a man. Just Job. God's justice is definitive. In verse 20, in a moment they die. At midnight people are shaken and pass away and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. He's not really talking about um, like swiftness of justice. We know that, and as we'll see in a little bit, it's not that God's justice is um, immediate. That's the right word. It's not immediate justice, but he is talking about a kind of surety here 
a purposeful kind of justice. This almost reflects going back to, remember the story of the Passover in Egypt and uh, the 10th plague where uh, at midnight uh, people are shaken and passing away as the firstborn is, is taken away with a kind of definitiveness of judgment going through. Remember that kind of uh, uh, story there at the end of the, the Passover? This is ex- almost the same language used to describe how God's justice goes forward. He knows exactly where his judgment is going, and it doesn't really matter the kind of time. If God says at midnight, well then boom, midnight. If you're ready, sorry. Or if you're, if you're ready, great. If you're, not, if you're not ready, sorry. God's justice sets the tone. He goes forward. It takes the initiative. It's definitive. But also, it's all-knowing. Though it's crazy, though it's impartial and everybody's equal, yet it's filled with omniscience. It knows exactly what's needed. Verse 21 through 25, For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. Again, goes to, mentioned before, Psalm 139, one of my favorite passages. Though I go into the uttermost parts of the earth, there your right hand will lead me and you will guide me. We cannot escape from the watchful eye of God. And that is both good news and bad news, right? We can't run away from God, but also we can't run away from God. It's good news and bad news at the same time. But it's also accountable. It's accountable justice. In other words, God isn't some puppet master behind a screen pulling strings, not letting anybody else in on what's being seen. He does it all in the open. It's all plain. Everybody can see him. Everybody can check his homework. Everybody can see exactly what's going on in plain as day. And God isn't scared to let anyone see his work. Verse 26. He strikes them for his wickedness in a place for all to see because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. So that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, and he heard the cry of the afflicted. It's accountable. Everything that happens is plain. But also it's timely. In verse 29 and 30. When he is quiet, when God is quiet, who can behold him? When he hi- or who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man? When God wants to be seen, when God wants to be heard, at the right time, he'll show himself. It'll be perfectly timed. You can't rush him. You can't find him out. You can't peek behind the curtain. You're not going to be able to see too early. He'll show up exactly when he needs to show up. Nation or man, doesn't matter how powerful, how strong, no one can thwart God's hand from his timely justice. Again, this is, depending on what side of the coin you're on, this can be good news or bad news. For the unbeliever, for the person who would reject God, of course, we would warn you and just say, God's justice, though he might seem quiet now, my friend, there is a time of harvest. There is a time of justice to be met out. And that day is coming nearer than it's ever been. And my just heartfelt imploring to you would be, you need to repent. You need to turn away from trying to be God yourself. That question of who's right is not their question. It's what's right. And the reality of God's holiness needs to be met. My friend, there's two ways to do that. Number one, you meet that on your own terms. You meet that with your own righteousness. You live up to God's standard and level of perfection with your own record of success. 
I would ask you how you're doing, but I already know the answer to that question. Probably like me, not great. The sooner you come to that realization, the better, because the reality is God in his son, Jesus Christ, has given the record of perfection to you for free. We call it grace. Where did he do it? He did it on the cross, where Jesus himself died as a sinner in your place to take on your sin and mine and the sin of the world to hell and back so that you might be set free from your sin. The record of the law was met in your place and all of his righteousness that he freely earned was given to you. And we call that faith, receiving all of that simply by trusting in that reality and that work. And if you don't believe the word of God, it's also written in history, my friend. It's a historical fact that a man named Jesus died on the cross, but he did it also spiritually for you. But the good news is God's justice is also being worked out in our lives currently here. God is at work redeeming all things. And this is the promise we have in the gospel, or as one of my favorite hymns says, God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and to scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. We don't get to see everything right here and right now clearly as we want to. And though God has demonstrated himself clearly, we have a hard time through our own lens of faith making sense of all things. And my friends, the only thing that we have to look for is the stuff that God has already done in Christ. And so we trust him. We stay here. And we look confidently at the justice already meted out on our behalf. We don't move away. We simply trust what he has given and this is ultimately the final conclusion that Elihu has given to Job. And it's actually pretty funny, I think. Verse 31, it's a little hard to kind of recognize. I'll, I'll give you my own little uh, twist on what I think Elihu is saying. For as anyone said to God, I have borne punishment. I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. I think basically he's asking the question, has anybody tried repentance? Has anyone tried doing this thing where we're honest about our own sin and failings and shortcomings? In other words, instead of trying to justify ourselves and saying, God, I'm right, we just come clean and just say, God, I'm wrong in all these ways and much more. I need you to be God for me. Have we ever come clean on just confession and renewal? Or maybe we could say it this way. Have we ever had a reset button for our bad attitudes? <laughs> That's kind of what I think mostly is happening here. It's like I go to my kids like, all right, we're going to take a nap because we all have bad attitudes. And when we wake up, hopefully we'll have a giant reset. And it's like Elihu's coming to Job and he's like, it's time for us to just not be God anymore, Job. Has anyone tried repentance? Telling the truth, we need God, but also coming to grips with, and we have him. Verse 33, will he then make a repayment to suit you because you reject it? If you try to go against repentance, what do you think? God's just going to come to you and be like, ah, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. You're God. I'm not God. You're God. Forgot about it. No, but my friend, come on. For you must choose. And not I. Therefore, declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise men who hear, uh, who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge; his words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end, 
because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his word against God. And again, that's where I would just be like, Elihu, maybe that's too strong. I don't know. Give him a break a little bit. But if you're listening through that, I think you can hear the truth that needs to be heard. It's okay not to be God. In fact, the sooner you come to that realization, the more free you'll be. And the reality is what God has provided for us is way better than we think. And we might not be able to make sense of it right here and right now. But my friend, all you have to do is look at the cross to see the plan of God for you. So here's the ultimate conclusion. It's never been about who's right. And if you're suffering tonight, suffering with sin, suffering with circumstances, and you're struggling in your heart and life, you feel like you're in a fight with God, maybe you're just simply asking the question, who's right? And my friend, that's the wrong question. It's never been about why. It's always been about who. It's always been about what is God doing? Who is God? What's he up to? Have you ever asked that question? God, I allow you to be God. I'm not God over my life, and though I don't see everything clearly, I know one thing's for sure. I'm not God. You are. The reality is I was blessed to think through the life of Jesus this week, knowing that Jesus himself led in this way, didn't he? Although, this is, comes from Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son, already a son, already had standing, he could have, he could have asked the question, who is right? And he would be like, I'm right, I'm a son. He didn't do that. He asked, what is right? And so he learned obedience. He humbled himself to the truth and he learned obedience through what he suffered. That is crazy. And what's ultimately that obedience? He trusted his father. He trusted in the love of the father. He trusted in the redemption of the father. Couldn't see everything clearly in his, I can't explain that, human God. He trusted his father for what he couldn't know, even though he knew everything. It's beautiful. We must submit our hearts to the same truth. And here's takeaway number two, conclusion number two. The good news of Jesus is the ultimate truth. Say, what is the ultimate truth? Jesus came in John 1. Everything that we had from God was first through the law, came through Moses. But Jesus came, and all of a sudden we have grace and truth given through him. And later on in John 14, he would say, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Trust me. Look at the door that I've opened through my cross and resurrection. So again, my friend, maybe God is at work just getting you acquainted with the life of the cross, a life of suffering where all you have at the end is not your own godness, not your own sense of relief or redemption from your suffering, but just suffering and Jesus along with it. And my friend, that would be all that you need, as hard as that is, as what seemingly unbearable as that is. But Jesus himself, in the same way, went through the same thing for you. And says it is all you need. So my friend, no matter what you're going through, the reality is we must submit our hearts to the truth of the gospel. It's all you need. It's all you have. We need to trust it. Let's pray. Give us...
Oh. 